What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilczek. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Aaron Hoyt, an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Corrections at Minnesota State University, Mankato, about his research on marriage and same-sex relationships. This is episode 13 of Untenured Tracks. probably two things uh, in the works for me at the moment that I'm most excited about. Um, uh, the first uh, is um, uh, an edited volume um, uh, that's in the very beginning stages, um, uh, tentatively titled uh, The Social Science of Same-Sex Marriage, um, LGBTQ People and Their Relationships in the Era of Marriage Equality. Um, that title feels um, maybe grandiose, but the intention was just to um, um, uh, write something that would um, welcome an interdisciplinary uh, group of um, writers. So um, I, uh, I do a lot of um, research and writing on same-sex marriage and divorce, and, you know, given the fact that um, same-sex marriage only became legal nationwide in the in 2015, I think there's still quite a lot of um, work that um, needs to be done. We're only now in a place to do a lot of empirical work um, to try to figure out what same-sex marriages look like and what their um, um, uh, effects are for people who enter them and, and the larger effects for the LGBT community, uh, etc. So um, I, a lot of that research is beginning to do develop um, in academic journals, um, but I wanted to sort of um, bring together um, an interdisciplinary group of social scientists to sort of um, feature some cutting-edge work on same-sex marriage. What is like the state of what we know at this moment on um, uh, same-sex uh, marriages? And so um, that call for uh, proposals uh, was distributed, um, is being distributed now, and then um, chapter submissions are, are due at the end of November. So I've already gotten a number of chapter submissions that uh, proposals that get me really excited um, for the shape that uh, that volume will eventually take. Um, the other thing I'm really excited about, um, this is um, also uh, um, pretty early in its development, uh, earlier even, in fact. Um, I'm um, working with a, a sociologist here uh, in my department um, at uh, Minnesota State University, Mankato. Uh, her name is Emily Boyd, and we're um, uh, developing um, an online um, survey with um, um, closed-ended and open-ended questions that we're um, hoping will uh, help us uh, better understand a young, unmarried LGBT people's marital aspirations and attitudes. Uh, I think that's um, an area of research um, uh, in which we've seen fairly little uh, uh, development so far, but there are a lot of big and open questions for me, right? I mean, so much is being 
uh, uh, written about uh, the retreat from marriage, and so much of that's being placed on younger people who are marrying later and later in life, uh, and sometimes foregoing marriage altogether. And a lot is being written about how young people think about marriage, and and often that writing's quite critical. But we've not yet said a word, to the best of my knowledge, about how um, uh, young LGBT people might think about marriage, right? The focus has been exclusively on those entering or not entering different sex marriages and when they do. But, you know, for people who've just gained legal access to the institution, it might have really distinct meanings, right? I, I, I think in some ways it's entirely possible that many will be highly motivated to marry, right? To enter into this um, new institution to which they've just been given his legal access that's historically unprecedented. Of course, there's also a lot of skepticism, understandably, I think, around marriage within the broader LGBTQ community, so there might be more reticence. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I can see the data working out in lots of different ways. So I to me, that just means we need to go collect some data. So that's what we're trying to do. Um, we're um, uh, right now um, designing that survey and, and hopefully getting it through our IRB here soon. Um, so, yeah, those are things I have in works at the moment. Yeah. Very cool. So um, one of the things that I remember from grad school when the topic of any any sort of crime or like family stuff came up with regard to same-sex couples was that we just don't know. Right. Like right. We, we just have no idea what what is happening in these relationships. Nobody's been able to study it. People who have tried to study it have been sort of uh, discouraged, I guess, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. from studying it. So has it been your experience that that sort of, I guess, attitude that the previous generation of academics had is still is that still something that's prevalent? Or have you found that there, there's more acceptance into studying LGBT couples now? Yeah, I, you know, I think, um, well, my own experience has been that uh, most folks, certainly in, in sociology, but even outside of sociology, have been pretty, um, I would say, not only, like, welcoming, but really encouraging of the kind of research that I do. Um, but, I, you know, I don't know that that's representative of of the experiences most folks have trying to do this kind of work. I think I've been really fortunate in uh, having had a really supportive network of colleagues and friends, and I've been in Mm -hmm. uh, programs and institutions, um, including some LGBT studies programs and women's and gender studies programs, where um, clearly there was a a really um, strong uh, support for uh, LGBT-themed research. Um, But, you know, I still think that there is for sure um, all sorts of difficulties out there in doing some of this work. And some of that, for sure, I think, uh, you know, at different kinds of institutions and in different networks is about, you know, frankly, homophobia mm-hmm. or the sense that um, um, work on LGBT people's lives are just is just less important, is somehow mm-hmm. trivial. Um, and that's, of course, homophobic, uh, I yeah. would say. Uh, yeah, and, so I, I don't mean to say that that hasn't happened uh, or that that doesn't happen at all. I've just been pretty fortunate. I do think, though, this is something I have encountered. Um, I think that um, IRBs are really inclined to uh, look with skepticism on research related to sex and sexuality 
at all, uh, whether it's about um, LGBT people or not. I, my experience has been there's this sort of assumption on the part of IRBs that that people will um, uh, inevitably be uncomfortable talking about their sexual identities or their sexual experiences. And I think most of the experiences that I've had and that most other sex or sexualities researchers seem to have had is quite the contrary, mm -hmm. right? Most people actually kind of enjoy talking about their sexual identities or their um, sexual encounters. I mean, that can be affirming for them. Uh, it can just be um, fun. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, that's one thing I think um, has been um sort of a challenge for me, right? Like if I want to ask people about their sexual behavior, which I often do, you know, IRB sometimes um, throw up their hands at that and say that's just really not acceptable. So that's probably the biggest thing I can think of. Yeah. That's really surprising because like the data that I'm the most familiar with, um, like that data set was created in the 90s in response to like a nationwide panic about um, teen pregnancy and teen sexual behaviors. And they're still yeah. collecting data on that. It's it's ad health. If anybody listening to this is a oh, data dork, um, <laughs> it's yeah, it's yeah. ad health. Ad health was created because like the Clinton administration, this huge moral panic about babies having babies, and yeah. and we need to figure out what's going on. And the the people who put that study together were like, we're going to take advantage of this, and then also pack in like ten thousand other questions that have nothing to do yeah, with. Yeah with sexual health and i mean that that survey is still active today so i'm i'm really surprised i mean i know that irbs i'm having my own irb struggle now so i should be careful what i say <laughs> but i i know that there's kind of like historically like we're at loggerheads right so i'm yeah, just i'm just right. really surprised that that something that's been like the core of the sociology of family research for so long suddenly is like, yeah, we're yeah. just we're just grossed out by these questions and right, <laughs> are right. afraid of making people uncomfortable. That's really surprising. Yeah, and it, you know it's it's odd because I don't get the sense that most folks at IRBs themselves are like uh, like troubled by sex research or sexualities research. Like I think their assumption is just that it will be. Uh, invasive and uncomfortable for people participating and that i just don't quite uh think is supported by the data right i don't think that's supported by people's experiences either so uh, it's there's this weird sort of um incorrect i would say assumption that i'm not uh as a member of the irb troubled by talking about sex but other people are you know yeah um, that, that sex is still this really repressed thing that people don't want to talk about, even though I am, of course, um, liberated and, and free to talk about it happily. Uh, that's my assumption. I don't know. That that's yeah. Right, but that's, that's the impression I get. Huh. I don't know. It just makes me wonder, like, what type of research these IRBs are are funding or are supporting. You know what I mean? Right. Like, what research is out there that that doesn't make people uncomfortable? Like what kind of like especially like medical research? <laughs> like yeah, we're we're gonna test this new like cancer drug on you, and it's gonna make you feel great. <laughs> You're gonna feel amazing <laughs> right. the entire time. Um, right, right. So <laughs> I, I, oh, go maybe ahead. that does get to the idea too that like you know we have to maybe make the case that sex and sexuality research is 
worth it because mm-hmm. I mean you know in the case of the cancer drug of course it makes people uncomfortable but maybe IRBs just instantly see its value yeah uh, but whereas they don't with sex and sexualities research so you had mentioned um, with regard to the the edited book that you're working on that some of the chapters that you've been receiving so far have been touching on some cutting edge stuff I don't want you to spoil anything but could you sure. could you talk a little bit about what what that looks like like what what is cutting edge in your mind in this area yeah yeah so i mean one of the uh one of the things that um i think is going to be uh uh one of the things i think we'll be able to speak to in um the edited volume is uh the ways that um married lgbt people think about and approach their marital relationships uh and so thus far we've spent uh, uh a lot of time as researchers trying to figure out you know what are lgbt people's expectations for marriage right and we know that they are in general rather optimistic that it will promote um more um, accepting and inclusive attitudes um, on the part of society as a whole, but it might help them grow more um, uh, connected to their families. We've spent some time trying to figure out um, LGBT people's motivations for getting married. We know that a lot of that has to do with legal rights to some extent. It's a political statement, but often it just has to do with wanting to marry for love. Mm-hmm. But we've not yet figured out a lot about, uh, or really much at all, about well, what do those relationships look like once they're contracted and once people settle into married life together. Mm -hmm. And, and I think these questions are particularly interesting for me as someone who sort of works at the intersection of families and sexualities, because sexuality scholars have shown for decades now that, that, that same sex relationships tend to be, uh, on average more, um, uh, individualized, uh, than different sex relationships, meaning there's more of an emphasis on individual autonomy and um, and granting one another um, uh, freedom within the relationship, freedom from relationship constraints. So, for instance, mm-hmm. the, the big example here would be um, the relative frequency with which um, same-sex couples, but particularly gay male couples, engage in consensual non-monogamy, right? And so based on all of that empirical evidence, a lot of folks have uh, sort of claimed that um, that same-sex relationships are generally already more individualized uh, than than hmm. different sex relationships. Anthony Giddens uh, famously sort of described um, in the transformation of intimacy, uh, um, same-sex couples is kind of like forerunners uh, in this larger process of individualization that we're seeing play out with marriage. Uh, but all of that research obviously has, like, by necessity, focused on non-marital relationships. So to me, it's still a really big and open question about whether that same kind of individualized approach carries over into marriage for LGBT people too, right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm not sure that marriage as an institution is fully individualized. That, that process is maybe ongoing. But I think most married people uh, in the U.S. today still continue to think about marriage as a kind of companionate, communal relationship where you join your lives together, you two become one, and you mm-hmm. approach life with a kind of team spirit or a team ethic. Um, and so I think we're going to be able to, uh, in the in the book, kind of address some of those questions, like mm-hmm. to how 
are LGBT people arranging their marriages and, and to, and what kinds of um, values and assumptions about the nature of marriage those arrangements reflect? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and how similar or different are we going to find those results in when we compare them to what we already know Mm -hmm. from quite a lot of research about non-marital relationships uh, among LGBT people? I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. It does. Okay. (laughs) Um, I'd be really interested to know, and if you don't, if you don't know this, that's totally fine. Um, Part of the show is that I just kind of think out loud about stuff. I guess (laughs) Uh, it'd be really interesting to see, like, what what sort of racial differences or ethnic differences exist. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And that uh, that I, I. I don't know, but it's a but it's a really uh, important question. I think. I mean, mm-hmm. most of the um, the the data that I think folks are going to draw on for this uh, edited volume is going to come from relatively small qualitative samples. So, I mean, those kinds of patterns we can maybe sort of point to to some extent, gesture mm-hmm. toward. But um, I uh, I think we're going to need um, um, plenty of um, good data collection mm-hmm. to figure out questions like that because they're they're really good and important ones yeah because i mean there's some there's some interesting hypotheses even that are coming to mind now right about like so when you're talking about how same-sex couples might have more of an individualized approach to their Mm -hmm. relationship then i'm i'm thinking about it in terms of like well maybe that's I, i don't know if survival mechanism is the right term but because of oh, the yeah. because of the level of homophobia that's existed in the United States historically, like maybe right. maybe that's why. And then like pairing that with you know a lot of the the current anti immigration stuff yeah. happening now, and historically the you know the violence visited upon the black community. Like I wonder if that survival mechanism would be something that would be really amplified, or right, or or alternatively that could be like maybe it doesn't have that effect and and the desire to to have like a conventional sort of almost like bourgeois type of marriage Mm -hmm. becomes that much more desirable because it does like you said it becomes like almost a political statement yeah right yeah i mean that's interesting it makes me think about like some of what we know about um like minority stress right Mm -hmm. like i mean uh so um minority stress just to uh, so we're on the same page, I guess. Uh, sort of the idea that, like, um, that um, if you belong to a minority group, that you are constantly exposed to like a kind of chronic stressor about the the potential to run into discrimination, mm-hmm. um, violence, etc. Right. So even if it doesn't occur, the constant anxiety of of um, of of living in a context where you know you could is is really hard on people. Mm-hmm. It has all sorts of deleterious effects for um, their well-being individually, but also for their relationships. And so, um, and we know that that's actually a context in which people are making decisions about getting married, right? Mm-hmm. Like same-sex couples are having to think about, well, if we pursue marriage, right, if we choose to get married, are we going to have are we going to face discrimination in the process of planning a wedding? Are we mm-hmm. going to be denied services by, say, venues or photographers or the bakers, yeah. right? Uh, or or how is our family going to react? Maybe we've gotten to a place where, you know, our relationships are, you know, maybe not great but manageable but would 
getting married rock the boat and upset that. So people have to worry about that. But I think it's fair to ask too, like, because clearly minority stress doesn't come only as a result of sexual identity based prejudice and stigma, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. some of it's about race too. Like you said, like um, Mm -hmm. the the really toxic kind of anti-immigrant sentiment, right? I mean, to like, if you're, if you're experiencing multiple sets of minority stressors, right? I mean, how yeah. does that complicate the decision to marry? How does it complicate the way you approach uh-huh. your marriage? Are you, um, you know, you could imagine that maybe people would be um, more likely to approach marriage in a kind of individualized way if they um, experience a lot of stress and recognize that the relationships are really burdened by that stress and so might be more likely to end anyway you know it might be like kind of a mechanism of saying a way of saying like um i'm not going to invest quite as much right yeah Uh, um because it's so i'm so stressed and the relationship is as well anyway i don't know if that's no it does it 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 reminds me of a bad joke (laughs) (laughs) you know the the joke about the I think it's just the punchline that I remember, just that somebody is saying that they support same-sex marriage because they want everybody to be miserable. (laughs) (laughs) Right. right. But but in practical terms, like, I I think there is, like, a whole other level of stress that would come with that when you're... Because, like, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, the, the debates that went into planning my own wedding, right? And my wife and I talking about who's going to sit where. And something yeah. as something as ultimately trivial as putting together a seating chart when you're or when you're dealing with that level of like okay we also have to think about how mad are people going to be that right. that we even exist that we're that we're inviting to yeah. this and and that maybe that sort of guilt that might come with not inviting people even though you know that they're not going to be supportive and and just not even supportive of your existence you know it's right. it's really. I guess an intersexual kind of kind of question. I think that there's something really interesting there to pull apart. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So when you, um, how, how often are you able to talk about this, your research in the classroom? Um, so, uh, on occasion I, I, I get to, um, I, uh, so I teach, um, mostly um families related classes i teach a 200 level general education class that's Mm -hmm. like a basically an introduction to family sociology Mm -hmm. and then a 400 level um seminar um uh in in family sociology um and also a class on um uh um uh aging families uh and so in those um in those classes, but especially in uh, the sociology classes, um, the 200 and the 400 level classes, uh, the others in gerontology, um, in mm-hmm. those uh, classes, uh, we talk about same-sex marriage for sure, and 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 I um, uh, I don't um, I don't assign any of my work, but I sometimes share it uh, with students, um, and uh, actually I uh, was. I discovered um, that when I was writing a paper about same-sex divorce, which is something else I'm I'm really interested in, um, that uh, I I had some kind of, I had like a preliminary analysis mm-hmm. that I um, 
worked up. And so I thought, well, I'll run this by my students, actually, uh, and, and see what they think. And they were some of the best reviewers <laughs> I've had. <laughs> they, they were so uh, engaged and insightful and, and not grumpy like reviewers <laughs> often are. And so, so uh, that, was, that was really fun. That's actually something I'm, I, I'm trying to do more of now is to take research that's in progress uh, into the classroom and to get students to engage with it. Um, so, um, so I do that sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what, um, when you are able to talk about your work, um, what is their reaction? Yeah. Um, well, so when, um, we talk about, um, uh, when we talk about some of my work, students tend to be, um, um, kind of excited i think because they have um the author there right yeah. and it's not that it's me right it's that they can ask questions about the making and what else did you find that's not included here and that sort of thing mm -hmm. um so students tend to um um get pretty involved um when when i sort of bring out some of my own work and 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 um open it up for discussion with them um yeah, it's um, yeah. So I'm I'm curious more broadly about just your your sociology of family classes, and and one thing that I like to try to get at, at least when I have people on the show who are social scientists, is that you know it's not I'm not going to say it's uncommon. It's very common for us to have to do like debunking and myth busting, right? Yeah. In our classes, right. and so I teach about crime, and and students come in with all sorts of bad ideas about how the criminal justice system works and why crime happens and things like that. And I find myself right. spending a lot of time like reprogramming and re-socializing. Yep. Um, I'm, yep. I'm just curious, um, does that happen in sociology of family classes? Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so with same sex marriage in particular, um, just to, as one example, um, and this doesn't come from my work, but um, one of the, Things, one of the very first things that I have to help students understand um, is that not all LGBT people are excited about marriage, right? And not all LGBT people were um, uh, enthusiastically on board with the marriage equality campaign to begin with. Uh, and in fact, historically, uh, most weren't, right? I mean, in the 1970s, in the moment of gay liberation, most... Uh, um, LGBT activists were trying to dismantle marriage, not join it. Uh, <laughs> and so, so, um, so that's kind of, uh, 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 maybe not a myth, but like an assumption they yeah. sort of bring to the class that it's like that, that marriage equality is this universally, uh, adored, uh, newfound right, uh, for LGBT people. Um, and you know, it's not, I don't think like their fault necessarily. I, I think a lot of those, like, more radical kind of queer critiques of marriage really just weren't given the same platform or the same um, opportunity to be heard as like more kind of liberal rights based arguments were. So, mm -hmm. you know, you really have to kind of expose them to some really different sets of ideas. Um, that's definitely one thing we do in, in the class. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I've found that, you know, just kind of similar to that. There, are, there are assumptions that like everybody likes the police. Or in in my class right. yesterday, I'm teaching a revolutions class this semester, which is really fascinating. 
And um, we were talking about the French Revolution. And so there's this night in the French Revolution where they, um, very early in the revolution, where they, the National Assembly just went went bonkers <laughs> and okay. and started abolishing all of this like all these old feudal traditions so they they got rid of hunting rights and they got rid of they abolished the right of the catholic church to collect tithes um okay. like crazy stuff and yeah. and all of that stuff was associated with the french definition of liberty so like the revolution was trying to gain access to that stuff and then they took it all away and then at the end of it everybody's sitting around like well we want liberty but what does liberty actually mean and yeah. so I, I posed that question in my class and then said, don't worry, I don't expect you to have an answer for what that is. But just know that for the last eight weeks of this of this course, we've been talking about liberty and freedom from a very, you know, 21st century American point of view. Yeah. You know, like, I think there's a parallel there, right? That everybody yeah. just thinks that marriage is good. But then when you pull them, you know, do you want to get married? How do you view your marriage happening? Like, how do you right. view division of labor in your hypothetical marriage? Right. Then it all kinds of fa- kind of falls apart for them. Yeah. And I think, you know, for a lot of students, too, it. I mean, there are deeper assumptions they make that inform these assumptions they make about same-sex marriage as a political issue. I mean, one of the things they always, not always, often, I should say, uh, assume is that the ultimate goal of the LGBT movement is to make LGBT people just the same as yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, uh, heterosexual folks and cisgender folks. Um, and so, um, you know, they have to be um, exposed to a different set of ideas because, I mean, there's no doubt that, of course, many have that goal precisely, but mm-hmm. many don't. Uh, and those are alternative sets of ideas that they just really don't get you know exposed to and so you know we have to and and for them that's often a little um you know a little uncomfortable (laughs) uh it it, it, because it sort of can potentially reshape the way they think about and engage with lgbt people and lgbt issues uh and um but i think it's kind of important so And, and i can only imagine like the identity crises that an undergraduate must have <laughs> in classes yeah. like this where you know they've been they've spent the last 20 years of their lives conforming to a very rigid set of norms and then yeah just kind of have the assumption that everybody wants to assimilate and conform in the same way and then are right. told like actually there are a lot of people who think that what you do is pretty terrible <laughs> like wait what <laughs> but i heard <laughs> Mom told me that I was special. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> what am I supposed to do now? <laughs> right, right. Who wouldn't want to be just like me? Who right. wouldn't? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, awesome. I think that's a good place to end end the show. Um, so thank you so much for your time, Aaron. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. This was a lot of fun. <laughs>